My love for the mountains comes from a deep respect for their wildness. The mountains are an ever-moving, changing environment, and it's where I feel most at peace, but also where I feel most vulnerable. I'm equally terrified of the Rockies, as I am in amazement of the sheer power they hold, from wild animals to thunderstorms and avalanches. In fact, some of my best memories with my family are our yearly trips to go skiing and snowboarding in Big White, B.C., which is located on the ancestral homelands of the Okanagan Sioux people. This is where I first found my zest for mountain sports and came to respect the awe-inspiring towers that make those sports possible. But while going to the mountains is important for my well-being, I need to be careful that I'm respecting the well-being of the mountains I visit. Welcome back to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. I'm Sydney Clausen Rosewarn. In this episode, we're changing things up with a podcast edition of the Canadian Mountain Network's webinar for International Mountain Day 2021. The theme for 2021 is all about conserving natural and cultural heritage through sustainable mountain tourism. Mountain systems are key for much of the world's biodiversity, which is why International Mountain Day promotes awareness about the importance of mountains across environments through global discussion about sustainable development and conservation in mountains. We will first hear introductions from the panelists, followed by discussion around who tourism benefits as well as who it may harm, choosing when to visit and when to stay away, how we can change our views about land and tourism, and much more. But before we get into the episode, I'd like to recognize the land where I work, the land that holds the space for me to produce this podcast, and the people who share their knowledge with us. The Canadian Mountain Podcast acknowledges that our conversations engage with diverse knowledge holders who live and work on unceded and treated lands. We also recognize the historical and ongoing oppression that many Indigenous cultures, lands, and nations have continuously faced within Canada. This podcast actively seeks to decolonize, change, and inspire media platforms by including Indigenous ways of knowing. Before we get started on the episode, I'd just like to note that because the guests were connecting remotely from all over Canada, you'll hear some changes in the audio quality, but I know many of us are familiar with choppiness or disruptions that come along with meeting virtually. Now let's hear from our panelists as they introduce themselves. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We are here together, um, the Canadian Mountain Network and Reconciling Ways of Knowing to host a delayed um, seminar for International Mountain Day 2021, which we had postponed due to um, the passing of Elder uh, Dr. Dave Corshane, who was one of the conveners and founders of the Reconciling Ways of Knowing Forum. Before we get started today, with the panel discussion. I just wanna start with a few things to make sure that we've got our technical um, components of the session um, taken care of. So we've turned off the chat feature and we're gonna ask you to use the Q&A at the bottom um, of your Zoom screen to put your questions in. And when we get to that portion of the session, 
um, the moderators behind the screen will help make sure those questions come to the audience. Um, the speakers are going to be on different Wi-Fi connections today and their volume and um, resolution on their screens may change. Um, we have people joining us from all across Canada and some really remote places. So we appreciate your patience as we work through the world of Zoom. The session should approximately be one and a half hours. It may run a little bit longer than that. Um, so um, you'll be able to stay for the remainder of the session with us. We are also recording this dialogue, so anyone unable to participate in the entire session can still view it later and we'll have those links available. I want to offer greetings to our panelists who are joining us today. We have Indigenous elders, knowledge holders, scientists and learners, and we have you, the audience, joining us from across the globe. I'm joining you today from Edmonton, Alberta, situated in Treaty 6 territory, the traditional lands of many First Nations and Métis peoples. Members of our panel and the host teams are situated across Canada. And I would like to start by acknowledging that we are on the ancestral lands and territories of numerous and diverse indigenous nations. And we pay tribute to their heritage and legacy as we strengthen ties with the communities we serve while taking concrete actions towards meaningful reconciliation. We recognize the historical trauma and triumphs that many different cultures, lands and nations have continuously faced within Canada and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work with Indigenous communities in advancing their vision and aspirations on this land. We pay respect to all Indigenous people from all nations across Canada. We acknowledge the traditional knowledge keepers and honour their leaders. So thank you for joining us today for this International Mountain Day event. I would now like to introduce Elder Mary Jane Johnson Gudia, who will provide the spiritual opening for today's event. Gudia is a Kluan Mun Kudan elder who worked for Parks Canada and Kluwani First Nation for over 40 years on protected areas, environment, cultural, and Indigenous language issues. She's a champion for Indigenous language revitalization while partaking in a community that actively lives their culture. She contributes to an objective perspective to several boards and committees and sits as an active committee member on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Report Response Task Force, the Asikai Natural Environment Park Management Plan Steering Committee, the Pick Handle Lakes Habitat Protection Area Steering Committee, the Canadian Mountain Network Research Management Committee, the Canadian Mountain Assessment Canadian Advisory Committee, and the Dan Kai Renewable Resource Council. Gudia is retired and is a happy and busy grandmother of 11 grandchildren and one great grandson. Thank you, Gudia. Mary Jane Johnson. Ama Tutlesen Uyha Ama Guch Nge Lina Johnson Uyha Asua Gudia Uyha Na Asua Sho Ina Uyha Na In my people's way, uh, my name is Gudia. Uh, in the English way, uh, Mary Jane Johnson. My mother is Tuhlesen. My grandmother, who I am named after and who has passed, is Gudia. 
And my great grandmother on my mom's side is Ina and she has passed. By rights, I should be introducing on my mother's side and my father's side as far back as I know. And this way you will know how I was raised, where I come from and how I carry my name from my clan through the generations and have the honor of carrying that name in my lifetime. We would like, as, as Nicole had stated, to acknowledge that each of us are located on unceded and ceded lands of the First Nation nations, the Métis nations, and the Inuit nations across this country, Canada, and maybe other places in the world than the, the people of the land there as well. There was an elder from Teslan, her name was Virginia Smarch, and she said in very easy words to understand our place on this earth, that we are part of the land and we are part of the water. We are each caretakers of the lands and the waters on which we gather. And as more people travel around the world and settle into the gathering places of the First Nations, the Métis and the Inuit, there will be stress on those places. To be good caretakers, we must respect each other's ability to learn from the past by being present today for a future where our strength will be each other. Our legacy will be communities where all the peoples have a place to be curious, playful, intelligent, industrious, creative, strong, where the winged, the finned, the four-legged, the two-legged, the rooted and flowing, all continue to thrive to be part of the next seven generations. I wanted to share one uh, last thing here that um, uh, as we think today in our conversations that um, if we could step back from how we look at our land area of, of, um, of, and the waters, um, if we can step back from thinking of maps and, 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 and the alphabet of the written language and how both have viewed our, uh, the ways that we view and interact with the land and, and with the water. Um, if you can think back to some of the first guidance from your grandmothers, um, your Asuas and your Asiyas, your grandfathers, um, think back to, um, um, how they were speaking to you about place. Most of them were not speaking to you with the map or book in hand. They were using their internal navigation, their teaching and their sharing of stories of their knowledge and land and how to care for that. And that care has been passed down to you if you remember their words. We asked that, um, uh, 
as we all come together here, almost like a, a big potlatch, all of our trails all leading to where we are sharing this time and, and energy together in our lifetime on this day, that um, we continue to think about and care for all those that are in need physically, emotionally, spiritually, that we can uplift all of those people, making sure that ourselves are cared for as well. That's all for now. Thank you, Gadia, for opening our day in a good way. Today's event is in recognition of the United Nations International Mountain Day, started in 2003 to bring recognition to the global importance of mountains. This event is centered around the theme of sustainable mountain tourism, the United Nations theme for Mountain Day 2021. We had previously scheduled this for early December last year. And as mentioned, we, we have postponed it until today. I do want to also highlight that 2022 has been declared by the United Nations General Assembly to be the International Year of Sustainable Mountain Development to increase awareness of the importance of sustainable mountain development and the conservation and sustainable use of mountain ecosystems. As well, 2022 is also the 20th anniversary from the first international year ever devoted to mountains, International Year of Mountains 2002, as well as the 20th anniversary of the Mountain Partnership. Mountains cover 27% of the Earth's surface and hold almost half of the world's biodiversity hotspots. And these spectacular landscapes attract 15 to 20% of global tourism. The effects of tourism combined with the continuing impacts of climate change on these special and sacred places means focusing on sustainable tourism is more important than ever. And sustainable tourism is a broad topic. Today, we hope to discuss the role conventional tourism and ecological and cultural tourism can play in building resilient economies, supporting indigenous self-determination, fostering reconciliation while working towards sustaining and recovering biodiversity. And to have this meaningful conversation, the history and significance of these lands for Indigenous peoples must be included. And we must be ready to participate in discussion together with Indigenous knowledge holders and scientists, elders and youth to understand and care for these lands with multiple ways of knowing and doing to support these fragile spaces for the next seven generations. The speakers we have here today are from a diverse range of mountain regions across Canada, and each of them are working to support mountain sustainable tourism through their knowledge systems. Rather than read their bios to you, um, I'm gonna have each one of the speakers uh, introduce themselves in their own way and their own experience. I'm gonna pick on them one at a time to do this. So first I'm gonna introduce Kiljuice, Kil Kiljuice Barbara Wilson. Barbara. Hello, thank you. Kiljuice Hanadikidaka. I am Kiljuice, my English name is Barbara Wilson. I'm from the Haida Nation and I, today I'm sitting on the um, territory of the Simsian coastal people. I would like to acknowledge them and I would also like to acknowledge the people who um, have been through 
extreme trauma over the last day or so with the knowing of another residential school and, and the children that have been uh, found in the unmarked graves around the Williams Lake Indian Residential School. I am also um, a residential school survivor. My family, because of the laws of Canada, um, were all taken to residential schools, including our father. And so when we talk about all these parts of our lands, we have to keep that in mind, the impact that has happened to us. Part of when I, what I wanna introduce myself as is a great grandmother. I have two young great granddaughters and I have five grandchildren. I have four, grand, four children and I am the oldest female in my clan. And I am also a teacher. I've um, spent 23 years with parks, but I retired 10 years ago. I just finished three years on the board for the archipelago management. So I've been very involved with tourism since 1967 which is uh, a long time ago, but um, I'm, I'm very pleased to, to have been able to contribute to my nation. We've recently just put um, a pledge together for the Haida Nation's land base and ocean. And we've also put an orientation together. So when you come to our lands, um, we're asking you to read our pledge um, and follow our, hopefully our directions that are respectful of our lands. So my involvement with mountains, you know that islands are mountains. They're the tops of, of mountains. So we work very hard to protect our lands and our waters. And we are, are very aware that people love to come and see islands because they usually hold endemic species and different things. So we want you to feel that you can come to our islands, but we ask you to observe and respect our guidelines for, for existing or visiting our islands. Um, sustainable uh, tourism is, is almost that. Uh, um, what do you call it? They don't work together. They're they're like this sustainable means of oxymoron, maybe. Pardon? An oxymoron. Yes. And and so when we look at when we look at tourism, it's about looking after the land. And why are we looking after the land? In our old days, uh, we would have been taught to respect the lands not to take more than we need and, and to always think of others and the, the generations that come behind us. So uh, we have lots of learning to do here in Canada. So Hawa, uh, Nicole. Thank you, Barbara. Now I'm going to ask Bill Snow to introduce himself. 
and I'm supposed to refresh the the topic as well as you introduce yourself. Um, can you give us some background on your experience and um, what you're doing working towards conserving cultural and natural heritage? Thanks, Bill. Uh, thank you, Nicole. Amboa Stitch. Good day, everyone. Uh, my name is Bill Snow. I'm the uh, uh, acting director of consultation for the Stony Tribal Administration that is representative of the the Bearspaw, Chiniki, and Wesley First Nations uh, in, and I'm uh, currently here in uh, in Winchispa, Oyade, or as we otherwise know it as Calgary, Alberta, and uh, speaking to you from the Treaty 7 area, that is the ancestral home of the Stony Nakota people, as I said, uh, uh, that comprise of the Bearspaw, Chiniki, and Wesley First Nations. I uh, would also like to acknowledge our historical and cultural ties uh, to the Tanaha and Shushwap Tribal Council uh, in BC. Uh, we have a long and, and fruitful association with, with tribes there. Uh, in Treaty 7, I would also like to acknowledge the Sutina First Nation, the Siksika, Pekani, and Blood Tribe that also uh, are part of the Treaty 7 area. Uh, also, I'd like to acknowledge the uh, Métis Nation Region 3, and would also like to acknowledge the, uh, all of our brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ community uh, who may be uh, watching uh, uh, part of our presentation today. Uh, I'll be speaking a bit about the uh, bison reintroduction uh, uh, project. Uh, I think there, there are really uh, important and strong ties to uh, uh, tourism and conservation uh, Stony Nakoda is working on a uh, cultural study for the, uh, the for the bison uh, reintroduction project, and we hope to have that uh, released here soon in 22. And uh, we'll be talking how these uh, relate to uh, historical uh, themes around uh, tourism and conservation. Nish, thank you. Thank you, Bill. I'm now going to turn to Norma Cassie, who's also uh, our co-research director for the Canadian Mountain Network. Welcome, Norma. Thank you. I just want to say hello to everyone out there. I'm happy that you have joined us today. Um, yeah, welcome. This is this is uh, interesting times, and um, I just want to say welcome. So happy you guys are all here. Uh, good day. I'm uh, from People of the Lakes. My name is one who care who has gives away their last cup of tea. And I am also a grandmother. Uh, I got 11 grandchildren. Uh, two of them are great grandchildren and uh, so lots and lots of responsibility <laughs> and um, I just want to say that uh, I'm also part of the Indigenous Leadership Initiative, um, a whole bunch of incredible leaders across Canada who are working towards building uh, Indigenous protected and conserved areas and also to build build upon the network of the land guardians across this country. And um, also as 
Nicole said, uh, co-director of the Canadian Mountain Network, along with Murray Humphreys and our other incredible team of the Canadian Mountain Network. So good morning and welcome. Thank you, Norma. I'm now going to turn to Isabel Falardo, who is joining us from the east side of Canada. Nicole, bonjour. Um, hello, everyone. Um, thank you for uh, everyone who's been speaking before me, especially for the very touching um, introduction to our talk by Gudia. It was uh, really, for me, really meaningful. Um, and um, and um, following that, what I think brings us together today, um, or part of what brings us together today is a shared attachment or love for mountains, uh, certainly is what I um, am bringing with me today. Mine was passed on to me by my father, Jean. Um, he brought me in his backpack, skiing in the forest when I was a baby. He brought me um, skipping school on, on, on fresh snow days as a child. And those very special moments, um, really shaped my life um, and uh, wanted and, and now <laughs> I get to pass that on to my own children. So uh, it, it also made me want to pursue um, that great feeling of being in the mountains and being in nature through my life and made me um, so I'm in Quebec City, uh, not known for being a mountainous region. We do have mountains, uh, but it made me uh, want to live in different mountain areas around uh, North America, um, including Whistler, Aspen. Um, and then now um, that, that, life, that life in the mountains became, has become part of my identity through my professional life. Um, it gave me a sense of belonging. It also uh, introduced me to what, how great and how bad tourism can be. Um, and uh, I'm now, I'm back living in Quebec City. Uh, and uh, since I've been back uh, about 10 years ago, I've uh, started to study uh, sustainable tourism uh, as an undergraduate at first and um, somehow put my arm in the, uh, in the <laughs> machine. And now I'm just about to, uh, end a cycle and defend my thesis on on Friday um, that's um, concerning tourism, sustainable tourism and in innovation and authenticity in tourism. And so I speak or, or participate today as a uh, as a student, as a researcher, I'm also a professor at uh, Université du Québec à Trois-Rivières, where I, I um, teach and study uh, leisure and uh, local uh, local tourism or local development through tourism, sorry. Um, sustainability in mountains, in tourism, uh, protected areas, nature-based tourism, mountain tourism, that's my passion. That's um, my, uh, my field of, of interest, my, close to my, my closest field of interest. And that's through that background that I'm here um, because I'm part of Canadian Mountain Network. Um, I, um, uh, I'm a, I'm a non-Indigenous Quebecoise uh, partaking on this panel today, uh, uh, so from French heritage, um, and that puts me in a very delicate position uh, where my own culture and nation has uh, at the same time suffered and participated through uh, systems and, and, and dynamics of the colonial and federal history of 
Canada. And so um, this with great uh, humility, but also uh, with pride also that I'm here and I thank everyone for having me and I'm uh, looking forward to our discussions. Thank you very much, Isabel. I'm now going to turn to Stephanie Yu. Bianani Nicole, Ublami elders, panelists, academics, practitioners, lovers of mountains, and everyone else out there in the wild world of Zoom. This is a bit intimidating for me. Um, I'm fairly far away from everyone, so it's really excited to be part of this. My name is Stephanie Ewell, and I grew up near Ottawa, Ontario, on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Nation. I'm currently a settler in the Nuvialuit Settlement Region. I live in Paolotuck, Northwest Territories, on the blizzardy shores of the Beaufort Sea. Many of you will think she lives on the tundra, on the barren lands. Well, it is barren lands. There's not a lot of trees up here, but I'm surrounded by beautiful rolling tundra hills. So I may not have the um, Adirondacks and I may not have the Rockies, but I certainly have this beautiful landscape that everyone should see but sustainably, of course, that's what we're here for. <clears throat> I'm very honored to be part of this panel for two reasons. One, I'm a mad tourist. I love being a tourist. Um, I have spent countless, countless, countless hours in the backcountry all across the world, and particularly in the Northwest Territories, where I'm very fortunate to literally drink out of streams in the Richardson Mountains, in the home of the Satu, Dene, and Métis. I've been able to drink out of the East Arm, um, close to Lutzelke. We have such a beautiful, pristine environment up here. But I've also been fortunate to break bread with a lone shepherd in the Swiss Alps and be able to absorb and understand and experience other people's cultures. So that kind of tourism where I learn and I absorb is so important to me. And mountains are a part of the fabric of our humanity. They're so important. Like us, like humanity, they're constantly changing and adapting to their surroundings. And yet they remain so rooted in their place. Their stunning spaces and their remarkable people that live there remind us of the strengths, resilience and beauty of nature, but also of the people that make mountains their home. I'm also really honored to be here because I'm a practitioner. I hold two degrees in tourism and parks management uh, from the University of Waterloo and Texas A&M. But after graduation, I followed the calling of environmental education, largely in parks. In search of the ever elusive full-time job, I went from Alberta Park, Ontario Parks to Alberta Parks to Texas State Parks to Northwest Territories Parks. And now I reside um, with Parks Canada. So I've been at this over 20 years. I've been lucky, my job has been to raise awareness within people of the natural and cultural environments because for so long we separated them, but they're intimately intertwined. And I think that's been one of the gifts that I've been able to experience is, is bringing the two together and, and sharing that experience. In some cases, I've been able to help develop stewards of the environment um, as a settler, certainly working with other non-Indigenous people but I've been really lucky because within my job, I've also been able to support, um, provide resources and work with people who are already stewardships, stewards and hold that close connection with the land. Time that I've spent on the land with elders and youth helped me more deeply experience and understand indigenous people's ties to the land. It's provided me incredible guidance on how to make space for indigenous voices and the importance of the culture of reconciliation. 
I'm currently the manager of Tuktuk Norait National Park, where I work with a wonderful co-management board to manage our beautiful park and learn from my community the importance of reconciliation. I just want to close that I'm here representing myself. I'm representing the totality of my experience, my education and my career. I'm not here representing Parks Canada, but it's certainly part of who I am. Kuyanaini, Masicho. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm now going to invite Kajislai, Kilslai Kajisting, apologies, Miles Richardson to introduce himself. <clears throat> I'm Miles Richardson. I'm from the Haida Nation. My, my home nation is the same as Kiljus, Barb Wilson. Very proud of the work that she's bringing to, to this table and has brought to this to this discussion about how we best give effect to our stewardship responsibility as the humans of our particular territories and have developed the modern approaches to, to protecting and interacting with these areas in our respective nations. As Norma has pointed out and, and others here that Canada is, is moving to, to adopt that same stewardship ethic that have ensured that Indigenous people have thrived in our territories for millennia, for hundreds of generations, and Canada would do well to pick that up. One, one thing I want to spend my, uh, my time doing is, is, is remembering um, Nigani Aki Enini. Are, are con one of the conveners of reconciling ways and knowing that's Elder Dave Corshane, who's worked with myself and Nance, Dr. Nancy Turner and David Suzuki as the key conveners of reconciling ways of knowing, bringing together a dialogue between indigenous traditional knowledge and science, the basis of the Western way of being. And Dave Corshane has played a really key role in this initiative. And, and I think with the success of bringing the two ways of knowing together, when we were gonna have this, when we had this dialogue scheduled, it happened on the day that he passed. So we postponed the dialogue to today. And I just wanna take a moment to, to remember him and remember what he always reminded us that that if we're going to be responsible stewards of, of our territories, if we're going to live the understanding that all of creation, including humans, are, are interdependent, then we're going to, we're going to, we're best served by doing those things and beginning with proper ceremony. And he, he was very strong on that and brought that knowledge forward from men, from every one of our nations. And I believe that's one of the reasons that we're still strong and thriving today. So let's just take a moment and remember Dave Corshane, um, the founder of Turtle Lodge, if you would, please.
Thank you. How are we now moving to the dialogue? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Miles, for, yeah. for doing that. Thank you very much. So yeah, there are many common, there are many approaches to sustainable tourism, some of them more common than others. Um, so to start on as much of a common foundation as possible, I'd like each of you to explain what culturally and environmentally sustainable tourism means to you. I'm gonna ask Barbara to start us off. Sorry, I had myself on mute. Um, sustainable tourism, as I mentioned earlier, is, is an oxymoron to me. And I think about places like Fiji and, and Hawaii and, and how um, they've been impacted and how my islands have been impacted by the um, coming and goings of people thinking that it's all right to come and take. So what we, what we want to do is, um, is find ways that people can come and visit and, and learn what respect means in the context of the places that we're in. For many years, I wouldn't go to Hawaii because one of my uh, Kanaka friends said to me, if you love our lands, don't come. And that really hit home. And so when I look at tourism and the impact that it has on not just the land, but the people in all different parts of it, um, I struggle. I struggle because I see um, if you don't have limits on how many people can come at it at a certain time, how the um, grounds get beat up, um, the lack of privacy that locals have. And that's not just First Nations, it's people who have um, pioneer or settler um, history with us and, and how hard that is on everybody because we used to be able to go to the beach, any beach, and have the family there and play all day. And now we have to move sideways and make room for, for visitors. So sustainable means that we're gonna look after it for, further, for other generations. And so it means that not just the locals, but the, especially the people who come to visit us, um, need to know where they can go, how long is respectful, and what, what is acceptable in, in cultural aspects. So in, in our homeland, we have, we have um, potlatches, and potlatches are the, the final legal step in, in making something um, known and it's a, it's a private affair. And so when people come to our homeland, uh, we don't want people to think that they can just come because it's a traditional happening. It's, it's a very legal aspect of our world. And, and we, we want those kinds of things to be sustainable for our people and to be respected by people who come to our lands. 
and not to come to our, our um, potlatches unless you're invited. So that would be sustainable for me. Hawa. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you for helping us understand the history and impact that we have in tourism. We're now going to turn to Bill Snow. Um, if you can help us understand what culturally and environmentally sustainable tourism means to you. Ishnish, uh, thank you. I think that, um, um, again, I would uh, agree with uh, Barbara that uh, we're dealing with, um, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, two sort of opposing ideas around uh, uh, what we see today as uh, uh, sustainability and, and tourism. Uh, and I would add in uh, conservation for that better. Yeah. I think that uh, here in um, uh, one of the projects that we're involved with is this uh, bison cultural study uh, that uh, began in 2017 uh, and is a, a five-year pilot study. Uh, and we're at the, uh, right now, um, uh, well, back in 2017, uh, the herd started out with uh, 16 head of buffalo that moved from the Elk Island National Park area uh, to the uh, 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 Panther Dormer sort of northeast section of Banff National Park. Uh, the herd's doing good. They're up to about 60 head, and uh, they're adapting very well to their to their new home in the in the uh, in the Panther Dormer area. Uh, I think one of the things that we're trying to do uh, through this study is to better understand uh, uh, not only how how wildlife are managed and how landscapes are managed, but I think we're also uh, 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 looking at and better understanding the, the traditional knowledge aspect. The traditional uh, knowledge aspect that's really missing from the program today, from the, the, the bison uh, reintroduction program. And I think we're, we're in this uh, beginning phase of, of bringing together these two worlds, world knowledge systems, these two worldviews, Western science and traditional knowledge. Once we get to uh, a place where we can uh, have interaction, where we can bring both of those knowledge systems together, I think we can then look at ways of, 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 of it, the project really being sustainable over the course of time. That is not just dependent, we're not just dependent on science in, in how we manage herds or landscapes or the environment we're looking at cultural practices as well. And I think that's the, the aim of a lot of indigenous uh, uh, study that's going on. Uh, and, and very much thankful to uh, the Canadian Mountain Network uh, for funding uh, these types of studies. Um, I know from my own experience, it's been very, very difficult to get uh, funding to do these types of studies, especially in the important uh, cultural and sacred places on landscapes. Uh, so not a whole lot uh, in the last 100, even 50 years has been done on, on these traditional knowledge studies from, from the First Nations point of view. So uh, really timely and important, and it's good to see that that's happening. And, 
good it's good that the UN with their declaration on the sustainable mountain development I think it's timely that we're seeing uh, all of the work that's being done also within within the Canadian Mountain Network uh, thanks thank you Bill thanks for for helping highlight for us that there's a really large gap in the history of being able to bring Indigenous knowledge to the forefront. I'm now going to turn to Isabel Falardeau to help us understand what culturally and environmentally sustainable tourism is for her. Thank you. Um, so what it is to me, uh, I want to present in relation to, uh, and that's how uh, us uh, traditional scientists or scientists do, we look for definitions. And so, um, and we, uh, we have uh, talked briefly about that amongst ourselves before. Um, if we see, if we look at what the, the official or institutional definitions of uh, sustainable tourism are, uh, we look at bodies like um, uh, the United Nations World Tourism Organizations or other institutions in Canada, for instance, and what they what they say is is it's the bringing together of three pillars in tourism: so economy, uh, culture, and environment. And at some at the meeting point of those three aspects is sustainability. Um, so that's that's the ideal, I, I, I would say, in the definition world. Um, but the but what's what's more Im important, I think, is what's the uh, uh, purpose and why why do these bodies use definitions and why do they uh, define uh, sustainable tourism like that? And and to me, when you read through through documentation, um, it's not for sustainability of um, the planet of the society of the people it's for sustainability of tourism that's uh, the mission of of uh, united nation world tourism organization is to make tourism important in 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 the in the world and so that's a big problem to me because um that's towards that goal that they will allocate or i'm really happy that they will say there's an international mountain tourism day or whatever and it's important i'm not uh saying we should reject all of that but if you're looking at promoting tourism not sustainable world then uh, you're not uh, able to make important or ask important questions and to me sustainability of tourism is not sustainability of the industry or the businesses is is how tourism can make the world can be an agent of change good or bad but can how can tourism make the world a better place and i'm not saying that's not part of what the official definitions are but uh, it's almost to me and that's how i thought of it when i was preparing today and and barbara said it in her own in in a different way but that's the same idea it's almost like uh the whole idea has to be shifted around and so um so, um, and, and, and to reverse the thinking about it, the reverse, what's the mean and what's the end? The mean is not tourism. It's not the economic gain from tourism. It's making people uh, uh, better, having a, an, an environment. And so uh, when you say they don't 
go together. Uh, they're an oxymoron, sustainable tourism. I, I think to me, uh, the more I think and study tourism and sustainable tourism, uh, the more elusive sustainable tourism becomes. Um, and um, um, yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to. And so, yeah, um, the more unlikely even maybe it becomes. And, and like Barbara mentioned, since I've um, studied for now 10 years towards my PhD, I travel less and less, which is um, maybe uh, ironic <laughs> and maybe not uh, what we would wish for. But yeah, thank you. Thank you, Isabel, that you've brought up a really good point that we overlook often is um, how tourism can make the world a better place and in doing that sustainably. I'm now going to turn to Stephanie Yule to help us understand what culturally and environmentally sustainable tourism means for her. Yeah, Nicole. Um, I'm just going to put a little proviso here. We're, we're just at the tail, we literally are at the tail end of a blizzard and I've lost you a couple of times. So I'm going to apologize in advance if, if I fade out, I'm really not ignoring you. Uh, Mother nature is taking control as she should. Sustainable tourism is something that I really, really struggle with. Um, going back to what um, Isabel said, I love traveling and I think I would shrivel up and die if I couldn't meet people and learn and grow. Um, I think I'm a much more empathetic, understanding, mostly patient person because of the variety of cultures and people that I've met over the last 55 years in one day, just so you know. Um, I think I'm a better person for it. But there's a big but. There's a big, big but when I first saw this question and it goes back um, to what Kielju and Barb, everyone's saying is there's a but. Um, when I first read this question, the very first thing that came to my mind, like Hawaii and like Fiji, was Cambridge Bay and some of the coastal communities in Nunavut and well, not so much the Northwest Territories, but the cruise ships that go up there. Um, on paper, it's you get to see the Arctic, you get to learn about what it's really like, you get to meet the people, you get to see the struggles against climate change and, and isolated living, and you get to see the joy of community and survival and togetherness. Um, but of course, cruise ships leave environmental damage. And one of the big problems is the people coming off those cruise ships and visiting the communities um, would often just, they wouldn't buy things. They, there was no real economic support for the communities that they were visiting. So really, what are the people of Cambridge Bay um, and other Nunavut particular communities getting out of these tourists? The tourists are getting a lot, which is, is lovely on one hand, but we want to ensure that tourism benefits the people of the area. So for me, sustainable tourism is, is that, that meeting that when I go to okay, let's say when I go to Fiji, that I leave my money behind, that I purchase things. I make an economic contribution to the community I'm visiting, but I also make a knowledge contribution that I'm able to walk away from a community. I'm able to walk away from an individual meeting, from a potlatch, um, from wherever I am in the world, that I have an understanding of that culture and that I can be an ally. I can be an advocate of that culture. Um, I also leave no trace. I'm not leaving any garbage. I'm leaving money instead. So it's this, this, 
this coming be this coming together of a community and a tourist where everyone benefits, not just the tourists, and everything benefits, not just the tourists, but the trees, the mountains. So it's an elusive concept, and I don't think we'll ever be perfect, but I think in my heart, I think it's something to work towards. And I think there's tools and things out there that can help contribute to sustainable tourism. And the one thing that makes that I think of is in Australia, there's an island called Hinchinbrook and they have a carrying capacity. You have to get, and it's like the um, Chilkoot Trail. Only so many people can be on that trail at once because they recognize too much tourism is going to be detrimental to the environment. And so we just gotta have to figure that way out to so that the communities and the cultures also see that kind of benefit. So the search for tools to make it happen continues in my thoughts. Queen Aini Masicho. I'm Sydney Clausen Rosewarren, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. In this episode, we're hearing the recording for the Canadian Mountain Network's 2021 webinar for International Mountain Day about sustainable mountain tourism. We've heard lots about the possible benefits and harms of mountain tourism and how we can better respect and appreciate the land we visit. Next, we'll hear about the difficulties Indigenous peoples face when it comes to mountain tourism and cultural practices. We've heard a variety of perspectives from our first four panelists. And before we go um, further, I'm actually going to return back to each of those panelists. And I'm going to ask them to help answer some additional questions a bit differently for each of them to help us understand a bit more of what their experience has um, led them to now and how they see we can do things differently going forward. So I'm going to go back to Barbara, your wealth of knowledge and history um, and your, your, with your lands and, and people, what barriers um, do you face um, or are your Indigenous people facing in participating in and shaping the direction of tourism and those sustainable and, and cultural practices in, in, in their territories? So um, barriers. I think one of the biggest barriers is is the lack of of um, having a say when when these places were originally set up. You know, you think about the types of things that have happened um, when it comes to economics. The idea that um, everything's there for the taking, you know that that's not how our worlds work. And so when you look at the barriers, it's a, a governance barrier um, here on, or on Haida Gwaii. Uh, when, when we were first working at, at um, protecting what was called South Moresby at that time, um, we looked at uh, Kilslai Kajisting, who was, our, who was our leader at that time. And he and the young people of our nation decided that there was enough logging happening in the area and the impact it was going to have on our food sustainability. So they, they 
woke the rest of us up and said, whoa, we got to stop this. And so they, they did a peaceful um, protest and they, they eventually saved the area, not without a lot of personal sacrifice. And they established in 1981, the, um, the um, Haida Watchman program, which was a volunteer program. And it was recognizing that we had to look after the area, which wasn't being looked after. It was just being, the trees were being removed, the fish were being removed, all our, our traditional foods were being impacted because of the the fisheries law and the Indian Act. So the lack of governance, the lack of conservation, uh, the lack of being able to go out and use our lands because of the Indian Act, those things all had huge impacts and diseases. As you see today with COVID-19, um, our people were heavily impacted, the same as everybody's being impacted today. We went from more than probably about 30,000 people to less than 600. So the transference of our, of our knowledge to our youth um, through the impact of, of um, residential schools and, and other methods of, of separating us from our lands had huge impacts on the sustainability of, of our areas. And so, I think that those barriers are barriers that we need to address today. The, the um, transgenerational impact of all that and the healing that needs to happen within all um, First Nations around the world is, is a very um, question that needs to be addressed and looked at because when you look at terra nullius and you look at doctrine of discovery and where it came from and what it's done to the world, um, it provides us with lots of food for thought and the, the kinds of barriers that have been put in front of any person that didn't um, have the same religious uh, way of, of um, saying hawa to the creator and or um, looking after the land. And so those are the barriers that I see um, that still prevail today. Hawa. Thank you, Barbara. I know you mentioned the role that Miles had in that history. Miles, did you want to take a moment to comment on that? Just, just look at how, how Kildews just cast this struggle. You know, if you think sustainable tourism is a is a oxymoron or it's competing forces, think of what she's saying and the forces behind those. Here we have a an indigenous way of knowing that's based on an understanding that we're one with the rest of creation. That's a fundamental knowledge that indigenous cultures share. And that our challenge as human beings is to live that and respect that as we go forward. And then you, you compare that for, for the purposes of this discussion with the Western way of knowing, which is science-based, but is also based on those, those concepts um, that she referred to as 
the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius, where indigenous people are not worthy humans, not, not human enough to have rights. And, and the struggle struggle between those. But imagine if we if we brought did away with the untruths in this struggle, in that situation, and brought in this common human understanding and stewardship ethic of we're all interdependent. We're all in this together as humans and the rest of creation. I mean, imagine the possibilities then. You know, I remember the times Kiljuice is talking about when our people first started, you, you know, we're, we're, our people were facing the same thing the human race is facing today with, with, with climate change and biodiversity loss. It's, threat. it's, an, it's an existential threat. We're not going to survive this if we don't change. And I remember when our people were facing the prospect of cutting up, cutting all the trees. You know, our elders said they might as well move us to, to, um, to Europe or you know Siberia. Or, you know, that if they if they change our landscape, our, our our life source like that, they might as well take us somewhere else. And so we got to stop. And we didn't know exactly. We we knew we had to do it. And I'll never forget. One thing that we did is for a hundred years, our people watched our, our title, our, our ownership of Haida Gwaii be, be ignored and pushed aside. And our old village sites, 40 villages were going back into the forest. People didn't live there all year round anymore. They were crumbling and, and going away. And our people started under our own authority started putting our own houses back up in our ancestral village site. You should have seen the effect of that simple act on our people. It was like, an, it was like a, a life jolt, an electrical jolt of life in our people that's continuing today. Just recognizing the truth and assuming that responsibility and Implementing that is still our objective. And, you know, we've run into problems along the way, but the trend and the push is still, still the same. And I think it's a human opportunity. It's something that we as humans need to do. That's our challenge in front of us. None of us on our own are going to be able to do it. We've got to do it together and, and, and accept that, that stewardship ethic. Imagine if, if tourism became people in their place hosting visitors, if that's what it became. You know, instead of making their beds and serving them a cocktail, you welcomed them and you showed them who you are. You showed them your culture, your way of being, your way of interacting with your place. And you, and you showed them the natural features of your home and explained that, wouldn't, I mean, it would be awesome. There's so many opportunities along those lines, and our the the experience of our people that Kildius is laying out is is one option. Every one of us as Indigenous people has our story of that of that journey. We've got to adopt it as a human journey. Thank you, Awa. Thank you, Miles. There's. There's a lot of great discussion being built here, and I'd like to have Bill help us further understand 
um, he's he's raised some also some really good examples of the work that is being done with the bison, and you know if if there if that or if there are other examples of what's being done right now, um, whether it's tourism or sustainable uh, and and conservation practices that are that are being brought forth again how can we understand what's being done and and what impact that's having um, if you if you can speak about that uh, thanks Nicole um, I think I'd like to talk a little bit about the barriers that exist uh, uh, as was mentioned uh, and I fully agree with uh, with miles and Barbara on uh, the the lack of uh, voice and participation uh, that Indigenous people have had on in their in their own areas and traditional lands. Um, the only thing I would add to that is uh, one of the barriers is uh, is a lack of cultural awareness, especially regarding our histories of uh, Indigenous people. Uh, for for my for my uh, for. for my area and and, uh, and my First Nation and people here in Treaty 7, uh, which was signed in 1877. We, our people, our elders understand the treaty as a sharing of land. And whereas government looks at it as a land sale. So we've had miscommunication right from the start from, from 1877. Uh, and then we get into a, a very repressive uh, policy period beginning in 1884. Uh, I believe one of the first uh, restrictions around culture was the, was the uh, banning of the pot, potlatch in, in BC and continued straight on into the 1960s uh, with other uh, repressive policies. The one that really impacted uh, Stony uh, was the removal of Stony from Bath National Park in the early 19th and the early 20th century. Uh, that really uh, prevented and uh, it ostracized and it, it, uh, it crippled the way that we uh, interact with uh, land and, and with each other. Uh, it had a really crippling effect on our ancestors and, and, and that crippling effect is, is what reverberates today in our communities. So that's why I believe uh, 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 events like the Banff Indian Days uh, that began in the late 18, 1880s, that event was a way for Stony to still get access to their traditional areas, even though it was uh, it was a, a tourism event that was superficial. Uh, it it in a, uh, in a very uh, uh, in a very real way it reconnected us to our land. And so, while at the same time uh, we were experiencing all of these repressive policies, we were also helping the local economy in building the tourism industry uh, here in southern Alberta. Uh, first with the railway and then with uh, with helping out the um, early explorers and finding their way through the mountains. And then uh, finally in, in, in helping to build a lot of the tourism uh, uh, infrastructure that is now part of what the experience is in uh, Mount Assiniboine, the, the mountain there behind you, 
uh, all those pathways leading from Bath National Park, uh, Lake Louise, the Kicking Horse Pass, uh, many of the areas that we know today, uh, world-renowned, uh, were assisted by Stony early Stony people in in taking visitors and taking uh, early mountain explorers to these uh, very unique, uh, culturally significant places. Uh, so a lot of barriers that people don't know about the uh, uh, indigenous history, indigenous mountain history. And I would say that, uh, so that's a barrier that when people don't know that, uh, whether they be tourism or conservation people. Uh, uh, so that's one step that needs to be uh, worked on. And and I think that's why, you know, uh, I've tried to, um, uh, the only way we're going to combat ignorance is with education. And so we need to get out these kind of discussions, but we also need to do the, the reporting as well, the traditional use studies that talk about these areas and impart uh, knowledge that is important. Um, one of the, the good things I think that is going to come out of our report uh, on the bison study that we currently have, I think is the recognition that uh, wildlife have a place on the landscape and not just an environmental function, but a cultural function. And when we look at, uh, we look around almost everywhere today, we see uh, impacts of climate change, uh, most notably in BC uh, in this past uh, few years. I think that uh, the more that we understand the impact of that wildlife have on landscapes, uh, the more important an issue that is. Uh, bison do, do things on landscapes that we as human beings cannot do. And so just by them being there, they are supportive of other forms of life, not just the, the other ungulates and, and uh, insects and, and avian species, but the vegetation itself. So they are really hallmarks of a, a rebuilding landscapes, rebuilding biodiversity. And so I think that's true of many, many different areas uh, all across Canada. And I think that, uh, and, and especially mountains. And so when we take, when you take a species like uh, bison off the landscape for a hundred years, that landscape is less. So by putting bison back on landscapes, you have, uh, you have that restorative nature not only environmentally, but culturally. So I think that's one of the things that is important to keep in mind uh, and understanding all of those impacts that bison have on landscapes. We can't understand all of those impacts just with Western science. We have to use traditional knowledge to acknowledge those types of impacts. And again, bringing, bringing together these knowledge systems is, is important. But first, I think we have to get through and acknowledge those, those two different systems as being uh, separate and independent, uh, different ways of knowing. Uh, so again, the, the barriers are understanding that cultural awareness aspect, bringing it up to today, what can we do? Projects like the, the reintroduction, the cultural study, not only understanding the Western science side of it, but the traditional knowledge side of it as well. Yes, thanks. Thank you, Bill. We're getting into some 
some really broad, but, and also really huge educational territory with our discussions today. I'm gonna to turn to Isabel now. We're talking about sustainable tourism practices and historic uses of land and what we're, what we're doing now in science and indigenous knowledge systems being different and, and sciences um, as Isabel had, had touched on a more systematic in, in approach. And so from science um, perspective and, and, and Isabel with the, the history that you have so far and the work that you're doing, um, what, what do you see um, uh, that can be done to start bringing together science um, and maybe locally in your region um, and with their experiences um, with, with the peoples and, um, and understanding the land and differently and working together differently. Do you have an experience or thoughts that you can share on um, what's being done around you, what you're doing to help us build these relationships together? Yeah, sure. Thanks for uh, the question. Um, I'm gonna uh, use an example of how of of um, how different ways of knowing are also part of science. Um, so science is really diverse, anyways. But um, I think that one um, really beneficial and 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 really contributing um, aspects or or element about considering different ways of knowing. So whether it's indigenous or non-indigenous or, or other uh, opposing ways of, of building knowledge is, is bringing into, the, into light something that's not uh, often, or that's not enough acknowledged in science is that there is perspective in science. <laughs> there is um, non-rational in science, even in hard science uh, that I would argue. And, and so, excuse me, through uh, the research project we do with uh, Canadian Mountain Network, and then I'm part of, um, we're based out of uh, the Mount Arford area, which is a, a small mountain in um, southern Quebec. And um, one of the sources of information that for me uh, was a breaking point in that project, but is now also a very important part of how I conducted my thesis, for example, is this movie, this documentary called, and the, the, the title's in French, Le Vieil Indien. Uh, and so it would translate to the old Indian, I would uh, assume. Uh, and it was made by Marty uh, Knada Takus Meunier, which is, um, uh, he's a resident of the Mount uh, Orford area from indigenous, uh, 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 he's indigenous himself. He's also a scientist, but he's an artist. And he, so he made this movie. And in this movie, he um, uses art uh, and he brings in his art, he brings together science, history, um, poetry, uh, images, of course, to, um, uh, to make his point and to contribute to the understanding of, of, uh, of Mount Arford. And, and his work is a testament. He's honoring Mount Arford, the history, the ecosystem, the artists, um, the different heritages that are um, 
intertwined in the area. So indigenous people, um, uh, but also people from French speaking and English speaking heritage. And that's uh, really like, it's really embodied in, in his uh, movie. And to me, it is it's really touching because the word or the title Le Vieil Indien is meant to rest, that was the name that some people, French uh, heritage people gave to the mountain um, in the past because they would see a silhouette in it. But it's also, um, referring to the main character of the movie who's, uh, was, who's, um, who was expropriated, whose family was taken away from the land when they created the national park. That's some of the uh, themes that Bill mentioned. And, and, it's happened to, uh, and, it's happened, and it's happening to people from um, all around the world, including um, here, uh, of course. Um, so, um, so, so through uh, tapping into art, uh, and into these intertwined ways of knowing embodied in that movie. I recommend you watch this movie if you're interested. I don't know if probably you can find it, find the movie subtitled. Um, but that to me is in, in itself a really great example of how art can contribute to science and, and how different ways of knowing can come together to uh, really be great uh, tool for uh, transmitting knowledge. And at all uh, levels. And, and I will finish with that. Uh, more interestingly, that movie is uh, put um, available on the, on the internet for free through uh, Tourism Memphrey Magog, which is the, the local uh, destination, tourism destination um, marketing body, if I would say. So um, that's a contribution of tourism um, to knowledge and to, uh, and, and to using that diversity uh, towards a good end. And that was um, um, the desire of the artist that it would be accessible for free. And, and so, um, yeah, that was one example that I wanted to use to uh, illustrate how um, that touch, uh, how different ways of knowing touch my life and my work. Um, and, and the other um, really, um, I think inspiring um, I, element I would mention is I am also a, I teach uh, tourism classes and uh, in my classes students um, are amazing they're amazing source of knowledge for me and we're able to build together and they're really interested in uh, diversity and that includes um, so in my tourism classes, indigenous tourism and indigenous um, contribution is one of their preferred or most um, sensitive and, and, and close to their heart subjects. And so just recently we had a conference with people from a regional park who's putting forward a, develop, a development project and they brought to the discussion uh, some uh, contradictions in the way Indigenous peoples whose traditional territories are concerned by this project are not systematically involved, and um, I think that's a great contribution to also different uh, so from the the students, so the the future generations. And um, I thought that that was one of the ways that, in my experience, uh, it gives me hope. I guess that we're uh, making some progress. Thank you, Isabel. I'm now going to turn to Stephanie and I'm, I'm gonna 
I'm going to change the question a little bit. So I hope I don't throw her for too much of a loop here. But we're we're hearing today a lot about what we need to do um, to support in, Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous people in um, as stewards of the land and in sustainability and conservation. Um, but we have we still have this this role of the tourist and um, you know individuals and, and people as we go out on, on on the land and we experience the land um, not just in Canada but elsewhere and lands that maybe historically have been cared for by by other people for millennia um, and so Stephanie you had touched on your travels and experiences with a lot of enthusiasm and and how you've approached tourism and and those experiences so maybe if you could help us um you know help us understand or, or you know give us some ideas as as we go out into the land and we start um on our our travels as tourists um what can we do um what can we do to help um change our approach and our, our views and our relationships um, as we explore the land um, and, um, and, and learn, learn through those explorations. Um, what, what kind of guidance could you give us from your experience? Well, so much for all my notes, Nicole. I know you touched, uh, you know, you touched on something and I think we're, you know, we've got some great history, but um, we need to um, give our audience some ideas on how they can start approaching tourism. And I think you've been doing that. It goes back to me to education and exposure. So I think that's one of the things is, Isabel, thank you so much for, for being a professor. Like I think at the university and college level, that's wonderful. We, we've got people going into tourism and, and having that, that critical knowledge of it. But I think there's room when we're talking with the younger students in school, is opening them up to other cultures, other worlds, but also starting with Canada and, and going to our history. Um, and maybe, and I don't wanna say we need to have a tourism course um, in schools, but maybe there's ways to get them out on the land and get them culturally knowledgeable about their own communities. And I think the Northwest Territories actually does do a really good job of it. Our schools, take the youth out and this is from like small communities of 300 people to Yellowknife and they engage them with the local and so this is indigenous and non-indigenous particularly in the larger communities and so you've got these wonderful opportunities for young people to go into a safe space ask questions that maybe youth aren't always comfortable asking um, when you've got the opportunity to go one-on-one -on -one with an elder it's a great opportunity to learn more. So I think by creating more of these opportunities for youth um, in the elementary school and the high school, we will slowly start growing people that have um, a wider base, a wider curiosity of the world around them. And again, it goes back to incorporating that with th that environmental education. So getting youth to spend time on the land to me is one of the most important things that we can do within the education system. And the funding's a barrier, technology's a barrier, but there's definitely ways to get around that. And 
one other thing that I really do appreciate, and unfortunately it's not sustainable tourism, but the, a lot of the youth in the Northwest Territories have some pretty amazing opportunities. There's Northern Youth Abroad, which is incredible. So we've got two youth here in Palatuck. And Palatuck's only a community of 300 people. We only have two flights in a week. So we're a pretty remote, isolated place. We have two young, wonderful gentlemen, or high school students, that are going to Ottawa as part of Northern Youth Abroad. So they're going in a safe, they've got chaperones, they've got people to meet. So those kind of opportunities, and they're able to bring home their experiences, but they're also able in a safe spot, the people they encounter when they go to Ottawa to educate them about the Inuvialuit history and, and where they live and what they do is, is magnificent. Um, and we also have a really amazing program in the Northwest Territories called the Youth Ambassador Program. And so make, and what happens is we gather 50 youth from across the Northwest Territories and they come down here, well, they come to Yellowknife and they get about a week's worth of training. And the training is communication. It's about tourism, it's about customer service, it's about traditional games. Um, and what happens is those 50 youth or 25 or however many, when there's a big event, so some of the youth ambassadors that I've trained got to go to the Olympics. They get to go to, to the summer games, like they travel and they take their culture with them and, and they're there to educate people and also learn. So I think providing those kind of opportunities for that cultural exchange, um, I, I think exposing people to different cultures through programs like on the land camps, through Northern Youth Abroad um, and cultural exchanges like that benefit everyone. It's not always sustainable, but hopefully we can develop younger people and educate them to be sustainable as they grow older. Um, I hope that makes sense. I'm Sydney Clausen Rosewarn, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. In this episode, we're listening to the Canadian Mountain Network's 2021 International Mountain Day webinar. For the last 20 minutes of the episode, we get to hear the panelists answer a few questions from the audience about topics like virtual tourism and reinventing conservation. We'll also hear some bonus discussion from a late arrived guest and we'll end with the final closing remarks. I'm gonna now turn to a couple of questions from the audience. So I hope we have, we've got a little bit of time left here before we have Miles and Norma help us wrap this discussion up. But Barbara, we've had a question come in. Given that protecting the natural beauty of places like Haida Gwaii requires staying away, do you believe there's a role for virtual tourism whereby people are able to see and enjoy the sensitive environmental and cultural areas without negative impacts? What could that look like? Uh, thank you for the question. I, I think there is a place uh, for virtual tourism. We, we've had to adapt our way of looking at things um, as, as we know because of COVID. And so and this, this electronic world that we're, we're doing this talk in shows you the possibilities. And I think that doing um, university courses and that Isabel has, has spoken about and uh, being able to show people 
uh, things we have on Hide It Why, we have young people who are involved with, with um, making films and recording our history so that with permission, with the agreement of our people, those kinds of things could be shown such as our governance. We have uh, the Council of the Haida Nation, all those different aspects of Haida Gwaii could be made available. We have a um, communications department in the Council of the Haida Nation, and we have the Skidigat Band Council and Old Massive Village Council, and they all have um, communications or people who can put those kinds of things together. And But I'm not against tourism. I'm not against people coming to Haida Gwaii. What I'm against is, is the disrespect that comes very often with it. You know, I've traveled, I travel quite extensively um, around the world and, and I have a real appreciation for, for um, the people who open um, their parts of the world. And, and I think that respect is the thing that needs to be built and asking permission first, you know, think about it. It's our home, we open our doors. How would you want your home treated? If this was your house, how would you want your house treated? And if you take a look at, at these places where we've lived for thousands and thousands of years, remember it's our house and I wouldn't want you coming to my house and throwing your garbage on my floor or, or taking all my food out of my fridge or um, just trashing places. We love our land, we love our ocean. We wanna have it for future, for future generations. So if you think about it in that aspect and yeah, we could open the window and let you look in through electronics and, and that might do it, but, but think about respect and think about what disrespect does. Hello, thank you. Barbara, I have another question here now. I'm gonna direct to Bill. You talked a lot about your experience and the bison um, reintroduction and uh, those projects. What what else uh, and and the need for funding and what else would make it possible for other indigenous groups to partner with canadian governing bodies or other groups um, for sustainable tourism planning uh thanks um <clears throat> i think there's uh, uh one uh one piece that that's helpful uh going to be helpful is we have to reimagine tourism. Uh, tourism really comes from a colonial mindset of, of, you know, we do one thing on this, at this place, we do our learning over here, we do our work over here. It's all very siloed, the way that we look at land in a, from a Western science perspective. And so when I say that we have to reimagine tourism, 
we have we also have to reimagine conservation uh, and i think that's that's where we are at the very tip right now in terms of uh, understanding those two world knowledge systems the western science piece and the traditional knowledge uh, piece uh, uh, tourism has uh, uh, done uh, turned a lot of sacred sites into uh, uh, money-making ventures, uh, many times at the cost of uh, the, the cultural and spiritual aspect of how Indigenous people see, see landscapes and, and see their, their traditional lands. Uh, so before we get too far down about trying to find that solution for tourism, uh, I think what needs to come first is we need to have, we need to reimagine tourism. We need to reimagine and understand and basically come to a newfound respect for land, respect for waters. Um, the, a lot of places, especially in the mountain parks, uh, these are life-giving water sources for all of us. And yet we treat them like swimming pools or fishing ponds. And I don't think it should be that way, but that's the way it is. Um, and so before we get to all of the, the center, the focus around, you know, how do we solve tourism? I think what, what we, there's a lot of good things uh, at different stages that are happening, uh, especially on the co-management side. I think that we've heard, heard here today uh, but I think for uh, for projects like the the bison reintroduction, I think the first step that needs to come in place is healing for the land, healing for the wildlife, healing for the people. We'll figure out tourism later. That's that's not the driver of what keeps us alive. Economically, it keeps us alive. But I think, uh, especially now what we're seeing with the, with the effects of COVID, we're seeing so many people uh, move and try and get into the uh, provincial parks, federal parks. They're looking for that uh, reconnection to land to sustain their, their, their own uh, wellness and well-being. So I think that uh, there's lots of opportunities for tourism especially with indigenous groups, indigenous peoples. There's ways to do uh, indigenous tourism, but I think that cannot come at the cost of, of ignoring everything else. So for, for myself, uh, what needs to come first is that healing aspect. Uh, this is why we were doing ceremonies uh, at Stony. We were doing ceremonies in recognition of the, the bison reintroduction years before it started. Uh, this is why we continue to do ceremonies uh, at events like Bafinian Days. Bafinian Days today is not what it was back in the late 1800s. It is, today it's a cultural event where we connect with our youth, connect with our elders, where we get to spend time in a be beautiful place just outside of the, the town of Banff, uh, Minerpa the waterfalls. That's what we call that area. We go there to remember, we go there to reconnect with nature. The, the tourism part will come at some point, but 
it, what what needs to happen first is our reconnection to the land, healing for the land, ensuring that uh, th those those connections and that respect is there. Uh, in my mind, that's that's kind of where we're at. There's a lot of different kind of solutions around indigenous tourism. Uh, everything from sharing languages to uh, place names, understanding place names from the many places that do not, the place names that do not represent what the indigenous people understand those places are. Uh, as I said, uh, there's opportunities for well-being, uh, forest bathing, and that sort of thing. Uh, there are ways to, to show that uh, how forests are being uh, more properly managed that I think people would be interested to see. I think there's ways to uh, incorporate uh, uh, visioning and seeing places uh, virtually as we've talked about. Uh, and there's a host of other uh, uh, areas and services that, that could be part of our, the tourism experience. Right now today, you know, we have you go into downtown Bath into a gift shop and most of the merchandise is, is made somewhere else and imported into Canada. So we're living in a, in a cult, in a colonial system. And that colonial system is, can only move in, around so much. So the bringing in these traditional knowledge aspects, this understanding is going to take time. Uh, it's important that we we relook at landscapes, reimagine tourism, reimagine conservation. Uh, we need to do it soon because there's impacts happening that I think that we all see, like climate change, that are going to affect us all. Uh, thanks, Ishnish. Thank you very much, Bill. Nicola, I see yeah. David Suzuki is asking to say something before we close. Oh. If you have a moment. Okay, we'll, we'll switch to David Suzuki. Thank you very much. Thank you for letting me uh, have this opportunity. Uh, I, I was reluctant because I didn't, I had another meeting and, and had to join late, but I, I just wanted to say that I really don't think that tourism should be a part of the, uh, the, the protection of, uh, of these lands. The problem is, I think one of the big problems we face today is an economic system which does not include uh, uh, nature as a part of it. And there was a major report that came out in England last year by uh, Partha Dasgupta showing that the fundamental destructiveness of our economic system is that nature and nature's services that keep the planet habitable for animals like us are not a part of the economic system. Nature is just there as a uh, uh, a source of resources and a place to dump your uh, dump your uh, uh, waste. But in terms of what nature does, like filtering uh, water so we can drink it, uh, uh, like uh, taking carbon out of the air and putting oxygen back in it, pollinating all of the flowering plants. I mean, there are literally, uh, well, dozens of natural services that keep the planet habitable that, that aren't included in the economic system. So if we have areas that are dependent on tourism as one of the source of their, uh, their economies, they're simply 
being supported by the system that is itself destructive. The economic system and its demand for growth is a major, uh, a major part of the crisis that we face today. And certainly what COVID has shown is all kinds of opportunity for uh, virtual sharing of experience, knowledge. And, um, you know, I, uh, I have told uh, the, my bosses at CBC that I am not going to travel anymore by jet for, uh, for the nature of things. I just, I, I can't do that any longer. And what, what they're finding is that when you do that, when you have to do your, your filming remotely, then you rely on local crews and local talent. And BBC has found that their natural history films, for example, are much richer and much more profound when they get local crews in Africa to decide what they're going to shoot and how they shoot it and, and all of that. So I think that we, a virtual, uh, a, a virtual experience can be very, very powerful, especially as Miles says, people in local communities, they've got the talent, they can do it. We've got to encourage that kind of uh, local uh, production so that local people can tell their stories. The part of tourism that really bugs me is basically tourism is... Uh, an indulgence of, or uh, uh, a luxury for people who are rich, rich people. And, uh, you know, we can afford to travel and go to places and, and, and see things. And, and what's happening now is space has now become an opportunity for tourism. This is so disgusting that we have rich people who can pay for the personal experience. And I say that we can't have an economic system that allows that. Um, we've got to do it in a different way. Of course, it's uh, enriching to see the diversity and, and uh, of cultures that exist and of ecosystems that exist. But we, there's a much better um, or broader way to, to spread that information without the, let's face it, destructiveness or the uh, ecological weight of tourists. Mm -hmm. Let the dialogue begin. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Good to see you, David. Thank you. Good to see you, Norma. Thank you for joining. And with that, we're going to turn to Gudia to help us close out our time together in a good way. And a Shonitan. Thank you. When we look at um, how we are raised upon the land, uh, we never take more than what you need. And you take only what you need to survive for yourself, for your family, and uh, you leave others that live on that land the ability for them to care for themselves and care for their family as well. Right now, we had some very big snow up here uh, in uh, this part of, of, of the world. Um, we haven't seen snow like this for a while. Um, last year, we had uh, enough snow that it, it flooded um, areas uh, within the Yukon River system on the upper headwaters of the Yukon. And um, this year, there's a concern because of the amount of snow that is on the ground. Uh, again of, of flooding. 
So we're 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 faced on a daily basis with these kind of uh, of of thinking and uh, of this kind of snow. I can't go out on the land without having a good pair of snowshoes because the snow is up to my uh, um, uh, up to almost my waist. I have to figure out um, um, bringing a shovel and I have to have sand in my in my vehicle if I travel. Um, these are expected things that I am I'm, I'm dealing with in my life and others as well. Um, what is unexpected is um, the continuation of um, how we're going to um, um, deal with uh, the, this pandemic that we are in globally. Um, we're living in a time when um, the Earth's nation have and are taking extraordinary measures to, to care for their, their people, uh, care for their communities, care for their businesses. Um, uh, we should also have um, um, the time to reflect as we're sitting at home, as we're looking at new ways to, to conduct businesses within our communities, within our nations. And uh, look at our ingenuity, our adaptability uh, in finding new ways. Uh, we are not here uh, without those abilities. Uh, we have evolved to where we are right now within our nations, within our communities, and we will continue to, to evolve and, and carry on. Look at your, your uh, uh, businesses and its role in your communities and how, it, uh, uh, how that vision of uh, short-term and, and long-term, um, um, how it fits into uh, um, that thinking within your nation of, of seven generations up, uh, up ahead. Um, when we look at terms of sustainable uh, ecosystems and uh, sustainable uh, tourism within those ecosystems, uh, we look at uh, the, uh, the benefits and impacts, uh, but we also need to look at um, um, the goodness that um, um, uh, each other offers when we provide hope um, to how we would like to continue to move ahead within our time here on earth and care for the land and the waters that they have hope as well. Good, show me then, finish. That was the Canadian Mountain Network's podcast edition of the 2021 webinar for International Mountain Day about sustainable mountain tourism. 2021 was declared the International Year for Sustainable Mountain Development, which sought to increase awareness about conservation and sustainable use of mountain ecosystems around the world. For 2022, the theme is Women Move Mountains. Even though mountain women are doing many of the same tasks men are, they do not have access to resources or decision-making power in the same way men do. Women Move Mountains is a call to action for women to be involved in leadership and decision-making to create positive change for sustainable mountain development and improve social justice in mountain communities.
that's it for this edition of the Canadian Mountain Podcast in partnership with the Community Podcast Initiative at Mount Royal University. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced from Treaty 7 Territories, a place that holds generations of culture and stories. With the Canadian Mountain Podcast, our goal is to share both Indigenous knowledge and settler perspectives, and we give appreciation to those stories. We are committed to collaborating with Indigenous peoples through storytelling and partnerships. Therefore, we acknowledge the hereditary keepers of these lands, the Nitsitapi, or Blackfoot, Iahe, Nakoda, or Stony Nakoda, Sutina Dene, or Sutina peoples, and Métis peoples. I'm Sydney Clausen Rosewarn, the producer of this episode. Be sure to join us again for more stories surrounding mountain places. Whether that be in your own backyard or from around the country, share and subscribe to get the latest updates on the new season. And be sure to tell your mountain-loving friends and colleagues. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. And you can learn more about the Canadian Mountain Network at canadianmountainnetwork.ca.